Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast, podcast. Oh, I got that wrong. I'm stressed because <laughs> I've got two luminaries aside me. I've got John Higgins, who is the legacy consultant and editor at eltonjohn.com. He's going to correct me. Can you give me yeah. a proper job description, John? Please? Half right, half right, yeah. Neil. Thank you. No, a feature writer of eltonjohn.com. Yeah. I knew I'd get it wrong. And on my other side, I have got Peter Thomas, who is the king of audio. When it comes to collecting Elton, he is preeminent. Welcome to the podcast, Peter, again. Thanks, Neil. And we're, we're all here to celebrate, have a listen through and talk about the context for Tumbleweed Connection. A little bit late, but then again, there's a lot going on at the moment, isn't there? I wasn't aware. (laughs) The last time John and I did this, he sat there with a straight face in a world where the jewel box wasn't about to happen and just progressed to talk about the Elton John album somehow without a smirk creeping across his face yeah and and held back come down in time as well yeah, yeah well, you so, kind of gave us a heads up for that but um, yeah i went to the edge of the cliff on yeah that you one, did but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we're going to try and lead you back towards the edge of the cliff today john i uh, i promise you I'm, I'm holding back no more secrets on this chat i i whatever happens next year i am unaware of at I this just point don't believe so. you anymore <laughs> but then again we don't need anything else We've got these three CDs, so much of it that we didn't know existed. I'd never heard some of these later songs that really surprised me, like, is it called Bonnie's Coming Home? Is that the name of it, John? See, uh, Bonnie's Gone Away, actually. Gone Away, so for, sorry. Apparently, first she came home, and then, and then she went away. <laughs> so, people like us, the, the three of us especially, I think, the, the discovery portion of our fandom has long since left us i think we've moved on well from the discovery portion which is always so exciting you know uh but people mm. like peter who who basically has everything and and then the two of, <laughs> if the only. Two of us he <laughs> now knows how, how untrue that is <laughs> well i certainly do now after the box set yeah. i was just blown away by how many uh piano demos there were there that i I'd, I'd never heard before so never say never when you're collecting elton there's so no, much exactly. stuff out there yeah. The day you think you've, you've got it all, you, you learn otherwise, myself included. And, and it was just yeah. great to have that discovery thing fire back up after, sure. after being dormant for so long. It's just, yeah. oh my goodness, exactly. look at this. And yeah. just so much more recontextualizing and slotting in and timelining to be done, isn't there? Always. Yeah. I, I Honestly, and, and even since the release of, the, of Jewel Box, uh, I'm sorry, Elton colon Jewel Box, mm-hmm. um, there's, I, I've learned more about uh, timeline on some of those, or at least one of those songs. So, so yeah, it's always, um, it's an archaeological dig and a genealogical expedition all at once. Uh, can I just say what my absolute favourite from there is? So far, Cry Willow Cry. Ah, uh, yes. I presume it's like mid-68, similar sort of era as Skyline Pigeon, because it's quite near there on the listing. Right. But very jazzy, sort of has something in right. common with come down in time in a way in the chords and then it's got that very jazzy solo but it's just so weird it's so weird so folky it's really unplaceable isn't it that one 
Yeah, that was a, that was a surprise to me. I don't know, Peter. Did you have that one? I forget. I I do have that, but I have a different mix of that. But uh, it, sure. it sounds quite different. It's the same take, I think, mm. but it's a different mix. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. In fact, the the one that's been issued on the box set is far superior. I think it's a nicer balance. Well, that's um, May nineteen sixty eight. Oh yeah, because I think we've got a copyright listing for that song somewhere, haven't we? Yeah, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we have Dee Murray's diary on that one as well. So there were select songs that that Dee Murray played on in in the demos era, and even more select. Uh, indications in his diary, which his widow, Annette, was so very kind to let us access. Uh, so he flags it as May 27th, 1968. It does sound special. And, and uh, you know, Neil's comment about the relationship to Come Down in Time, the original version of Come Down in Time, is very reminiscent, certainly. And, and the interplay between Dee and Caleb and Elton really shines on, yeah. on Cry Little Cry. So, yeah. Yeah, super. It's a good addition, isn't it? It is. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm glad. What, what's your favourite out there, Peter? Um, my favourite is Just an Ordinary Man. Uh, I just love that track. The the vocal's wonderful. Song's great. Lyrics are interesting. Yeah, I mean, that that quite surprised me. That's the one with the lyrics that are reminiscent of Hymn 2000, isn't it? It's, yes. At least in one yeah. place. It's nowhere near as... Scattershot as him 2000. It's quite focused piece of music, but it has got something about counting yeah. ship numbers or something, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it's a lovely song. I can't remember what it said, what the, the date was when that came out. It was recorded in October 18th, 1968. Right, okay, it's a bit later then. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that would fit with the Empty Sky kind of feel. Yes, right. Yeah, very nice track. Never heard that before, ever. That's what's so lovely about this is there's just so, so much that's been uh, trawled through the archives. And uh, I mean, when you've been collecting for like 50 years, you'd think you'd have found them all, wouldn't you? But it's amazing how many are still locked away. It, it still makes you wonder how many more are there? Well, Elton himself has said that the cupboards are bare now, hasn't he, in his unboxing? Um, but I wasn't yeah. convinced. Not convinced. <laughs> you can understand him saying, let's not go here anymore. Please, can we just have... <laughs> like, stop having people like me moaning on about having no access to this material. You know, he's done a great job getting it out there for us. Yeah. A few years before I start getting antsy about no more releases now. Excellent. That's why you did it, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to shut you up. <laughs> You've got to give a sign to moan about. Come on. Yeah, find something. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, we'll definitely find no, I'm, something. I, I should say that I, I had, yes, a great deal to do with, with uh, the rarities discs and the B-side discs in Elton Jewel Box. Uh, I'm so proud of it, and and I, I really love that fans of all levels, because this is the thing with, with Elton fans, is that there's not just one level of them, is there? there there's the people that discovered him yesterday, there's the those guys on YouTube, you know, they put their headphones on and they listen to an Elton song for the first time, you know, and their <laughs> yeah, reactions are fascinating. Uh, so there's yeah. that sort of type of thing, and then of course there's people like ourselves who have been there from the very beginning, or close to, and then there's people who came on only during Lion King or, or what have you. And to have all those levels of fans react so positively to this thing is just a, uh, I couldn't, we couldn't have asked for a better response. I like the way they've broken it up. I, I think 
I possibly could have done without the last CD in the in the collection. But I think that the Deep Cuts is good. And I can see that they released a video for the last song yesterday, didn't they? Is that one of the Deep Cuts? I can't remember if it's actually on there or not. Uh, that's one of the me songs. And this is, is it me. one of the me songs? Okay. I think it is. But yeah. I, I think the, the principle still stands, doesn't it? That it gives them an opportunity to promote some of the less obvious pieces of music right. as well, which I think is a good thing to do in this day and age. Yeah, most certainly. And uh, I have to say the deep cuts, the first two CDs, boy, I, I, they flow so well. That's all Elton. Uh, Elton picked them and Elton sequenced them. Oh, did he? Yeah. And, and he... Apparently, he has a gift. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, but if you can get over the hump of hearing We All Fall in Love sometimes without curtains after it, um, the flow of, the, of those two CDs within each CD is just so smooth and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We'd better get moving, hadn't we? Or else we're going to be yeah. here all night and we're not here to talk about the jewel box we are here to talk about the 50th anniversary of Tumbleweed Connection. And, well, obviously there's a link here with the jewel box, but it's what's not on the jewel box that's really pivotal here, which is the studio demo of Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, and obviously that uh, alternate come down in time. And they all fit in within the timeline, don't they, John? And we've, we've been thinking about the timeline a bit. Yeah, tricky. Uh drastically different from the Elton John album timeline, which was nice and condensed. Yes. This one's a bit sprawling, isn't it? Yeah, this this takes a lot of uh, magnifying glass perusal. Ballad of a Well-Known Gun demo was from the autumn of 1969, and I think that also makes it uh, the winner of the contest that we all knew was running, uh, which song took the longest to be officially released. Um, and I think from autumn 1969 to uh, October 2020 uh, wins the prize yeah. on that one. That's very true. Right? That's quite a time. <laughs> it's quite a different period. But the time is now ready for this song, isn't it? I've got it queued up. Should we have a listen for a moment? Yeah, please. isn't it and way more country than even than the uh, version that we're used to hearing from the olympic sessions that came out on the deluxe yeah I, you know i always felt that it's like the real halfway house because i felt that the the olympic one is quite up tempo isn't it yeah and i find that quite thigh slappingly country <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> well put and this feels like the evolution towards the slower more bluesy version yeah, well, that's definitely the sequence, isn't it? The first one is the uh, Olympic one. Yeah. Um, and this one follows, if we're accepting that it was the autumn. I mean, but it, it, 
drastically changed for, for the release version though. The, the rhythm became much more choppy. Every single beat got divided up into four and Caleb's constantly coming in on the offbeat. Here, it, obviously there's no Caleb, but he's... Is there Caleb here actually, John? Oh yeah, this is Caleb, sure. Oh, yeah. It's no. just that we've got that other chap on the steel guitar as well. Yeah, so this is uh, Caleb and Gordon Huntley on steel guitar, yeah. yeah. But also uh, Roger Pope on drums and, amazingly, surprisingly, Clive Franks on bass. Yeah, yeah. that's a once-only combo there, isn't it? Oh, most certainly, yeah. It's very yeah. odd. We, we just aren't aware of any other band demos, apart from, I guess, in the uh, Zippo era. That seems like something they were doing. Well, you have to also remember, of course, that this is one of those songs that must have been played out more than most others. When Elton and Huckfoot were doing gigs together back in, in this time, uh, which could have been, as we may have said before, uh, Hookfoot gigs with Elton sitting in, or Elton gigs with Hookfoot backing them, that's, that's still sort of that's a coin flip. Mm. Um, but, you know, a well-known gun, they clearly worked out over a long period of time. If we go back to August of 1969 for the Olympic Studios and continue on through the autumn, and then uh, March 20th, 1970 is when this song was actually recorded for Tumbleweed. That's, that's a lot of time to sort a song out. Yeah. Do we know why it's kind of in isolation to anything else? I mean, are there any other tapes from that period? Hard to say. I don't have the track sheet for this one, so I don't know if there were other songs recorded at the session. I suspect not, but I'm not quite sure. So, uh, yeah, it could have just been, hey, here's a song we don't think is quite there yet, or we like so much that we want to keep working on it, and and why don't we all just trundle into Dick James, you know, studios and, and have another yes. go at it. So let's get into the timeline a little bit. We're picking up, in a way, where we left off because we spent quite a lot of time, John, talking about Rock and Roll Madonna, which, as we found out at the end of the Elton John discussion, wasn't really anything to do with the Elton John sessions, being as it was recorded on the 20th of March with Hookfoot on the day when they first started recording Tumbleweed Connection. Yeah, uh, a real scattershot day, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they did a bit of that. They did Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, and they also did this jazz version of Come Down in Time. So the the only one consistent thing is the fact that it was Hookfoot for all of these. This is the, the only time that we're going to get a track in its logical position. This is track one from the album. It's also track one that they recorded for the album, um, which is Ballad of a Well-Known Gun. My edit um, exposes the outrageous spiky guitar work from Caleb. Oh, I love this. I love this so much.
unfortunately you have to deal with the the remnants of Elton's voice here, but you can hear that there's some syncopation going on in this arrangement, isn't there? Yeah, it's got a great groove, this track, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. That intro is unbelievable. And Caleb said Gus told him to go down there and have another crack at it and give us an intro while you're at it. Obviously, they'd done some intros before, but what they came up with is so illusory, and the drums especially completely throw you off target with it. It's insane. Yes, for those of us who are hung up on math, uh, <laughs> this, this can be a tricky one. Caleb told me the same story as he told you about Gus telling him on the way down the stairs from the control room to the actual studio, uh, Caleb, yes, just come up with an intro. And Caleb tuned his guitar, which was a Fender Stratocaster electric guitar, uh, down to D. Mm. Caleb didn't get much more fancy than that. There are some songs on this album where his uh, guitar is put through a Leslie amp, but not in this case. But yeah, just, just throw it around your neck and play. Yeah. I mean, this is just typical Caleb all the way through. This is his sound, yes. isn't it? This is what he does. I was thinking for an episode, I need to put together a very best of Caleb Quay. And this is, mm. for me, one of the one of the lead tracks of such sure. a thing. It's really magic. That's a good idea. Can we have a listen to his rhythm part in the solo that's coming up in a minute? Because it's just great. When you can't hear the lead guitar that he's playing, just have a listen to what he's doing underneath. It's so cheeky. great isn't it that's fantastic he's doing that caleb is on here three times uh because he's on the overall electric guitar that leads the song and then continues through he's on that solo um and then it, it's his acoustic guitar work also that's that's on this song yeah. so he would have recorded the acoustic last he told me that was just more for sort of depth okay yeah so, so the rhythm guitar was done first wasn't that's it? right that's right and then the solo at some point yeah no it's uh it's genius stuff with such intricate playing it still doesn't sort of cause traffic collisions you know within within the track yeah the backing vocals are superb as well with Gus's habit of keeping two separate pots of backing vocals it's really good for us because we can really hear the individual voices can't we there's a tape of uh, rough mixes of this album that Gus had and it's quite interesting listening to Ballad of Well-Known Gun in its sort of embryonic form, in its, in its rough mix. And, and he's actually penciled in the word Dusty next to Ballad of Well-Known Gun. <laughs> so this before she's on there, is it? I can't tell. I mean, you know, I mean, that's a hell of a backing vocal lineup, isn't it? With Madeline Bell and Dusty and Leslie Duncan. I mean, most people would give their right arm to have them as backing singers. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's quite an interesting insight into how he obviously built the, the mix of that track. That's brilliant.
Yeah, Dusty is on there. She those the backing vocals were recorded in April. So this uh, oh, the song we just heard was March twentieth, nineteen seventy. But the backing vocals were done on April fourth, which would have been two days after Elton did Border Song on Top of the Pops. And that was also Dusty, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, in his autobiography, he he goes out of his way to point out that Dusty happened to be there and uh, a mutual admiration society was quickly well it didn't take long for elton apparently he belonged to her fan club long before this yeah. uh, as so many people did uh but yeah so just two days after meeting dusty springfield in person she was in in trident doing the backing vocals for um for well-known gun and one other song so quite a coup it strikes me that if that had happened in this day and age with maybe Elton, but certainly other artists, and they had pulled in somebody of Dusty Springfield's stature, that would have been highly promoted. You know, that would have been yeah. part of the conversation from the word Wouldn't go. Wouldn't just be there at the end of the list of the uh, musicians on the song, would it? It'll be Elton John featuring Dusty, featuring yeah. uh, <laughs> featuring <laughs> Budmaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's a scary thought. <laughs> so, so accurate. <laughs> now, so may, I, may I hijack the timeline for Ooh, a moment? No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Well, yeah, go on. If, if we're going to have a time tunnel, it's got to be well justified. What's your time tunnel suggestion? I mean, certainly, yes, that was the first song recorded for these sessions and, and as you pointed out, the first song on the actual album. Mm. But I think the timeline for Tumbleweed could go all the way back to uh, July 1968, which is when the release of Music from Big Pink was. Uh, the, the, the band's album uh, that was so influential on Bernie's lyrics uh, and then Elton's music and this album in particular. Uh, I, you know, a lot of ink has been um, shed on the influence and, and importance of that album and that group in Elton and Bernie's life. So that was released on July 1st, 1968 in the US. I'm not sure how long it would have taken to make its way over uh, to the UK and into Music Land store in 68. You could almost feel like you're standing there next to them, hearing it maybe on the shop stereo first, because what other, otherwise, why would they have necessarily, you know, singled that one out to buy? And, and then just having it totally uh, create an entirely new path in their already multi-path career. Mm. And then a year later, in July 69, uh, Delaney and Bonnie released their second album uh, called the original Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. Uh, and also uh, an album that not quite as influential on Tumbleweed, but still very much in there. And Elton talks about it, the influence of that album, and especially its pianist, which, uh, as we all know, is Leon Russell. Yeah, there were some big changes going on in Elton's musical landscape, weren't there, at this time? Yeah. While still recording Empty Sky, and then certainly the Elton John album, which, as we have noted, is a far cry. Um, from this kind of sound, except for except for one song. But within six months, we have moved from the pastoral, lush landscapes, hilly landscapes of, of the Black Album to the sapia sound of Tumbleweed Connection. It's it's really remarkable. Yeah, it's quite jump, isn't it, really? I remember I, I, the first time I heard um, the Elton John album and Tumbleweed together, was from a, a, a girlfriend lent me uh, the two albums 
And I couldn't believe they were by the same artist when I first heard them. I always remember that because they were quite distinct. Um, and in fact, ironically, I didn't actually enjoy them the first time I listened to them. Didn't you? No, no. I, well, you got to remember I was 15, you know, I was probably maybe just a little bit too young. Um, and then about six months later, I heard them again, and that was that. So it was um, quite remarkable, the difference between the two albums. Quite a contrast. Robert Hilburn had a copy of Tumbleweed, didn't he, when he right. was reviewing the Troubadour show? That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting to know, isn't it, that he was already aware at that stage that the presentation already completely dualistic between the Black Album and the uh, three-piece performance was about to take on this whole other hook-footy thing. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was almost heading into being a bit too confusing territory for the general public, maybe. Well, yeah, I'm there with Peter in, in that I honestly didn't start my Elton John journey until 1974. Mm. Uh, so a few years, a few very dense years after the time that we're talking about. Yeah. So I did catch up. And when I heard the Black Album and Tumbleweed, I didn't hear them together. I, I didn't know their relationship time-wise to one another. I thought they were years apart. Mm. Yeah, it seemed like they were, yeah, at least a year or two apart. In fact, I think most of those albums, they all, uh, about five that came out, weren't they, within about 12 months of each other, and um, and they all felt like they were years apart from each other, but, but they were so condensed. Although time did, did seem longer back then, I think, so... <laughs> when, we, when we were younger. <laughs> yeah, that could be works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was a remarkable run of albums. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people played catch-up because they'd, they'd probably miss the uh, the Black Album coming out. And the first they probably, a lot of people didn't really find him until Rocketman came out and then realized there were all these albums before to uh, to catch up on. Yeah, and, and if you didn't look, if somebody just dropped the needle and didn't tell you who you were listening to, I, I, I agree. I think there's no way that that's the same guy on no. this and the Black Album and Mad Men. Not least because this guy's an American guy in, in quite a right. few places, right. isn't he? It's similar what happened with Elton's voice is similar to what happened in Bernie's imagination. You've just got this almost cross-contamination of imagery. Like, but mm-hmm. the, 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 Yes, there is a lot of the Wild West in there, um, but it's all meshed in with the Lincolnshire flatlands somewhat and his yeah. own farming experience and his own knowledge of what rural life is like he right. tried to integrate it and came up with this hybrid and similarly elton's voice he integrated the band and dylan and all those american musicians that he loved and came out with you know in some cases quite an americanized accent which would stick around for him yeah uh I mean, you you flash on Bernie's limited experience of exposure to America at that time. Neither Elton nor Bernie had set foot on American soil by the time Tumbleweed was finished, let alone written and recorded. So, you know, it's sort of a hybrid of the wild, the American Wild West with Omni by Spill. Uh, It's just quite a quite a strange uh, sort of confluence. But it did work because of Bernie's quote unquote brown dirt cowboy kind of uh, upbringing. Mm. Should we move on to the next track that they tackled that day? Uh, Friday the 20th of March we're still on. Um, and this, I'm going to play a little bit of it, is Come Down in Time jazz version. Oh, it's that time. 
Sorry, that's my grandfather clock. It's nice. I like it. It's very appropriate for this song, given the imagery that we have. Well, I don't know if I should have heard her as yet, but a, a true love like hers is a hard love to get and have. It's such a warm, organic recording, isn't it? It's lovely to have some music back in our lives, some new stuff that we love to listen to that has that warm 1970 sound. I've never appreciated Hookfoot more. I've always thought that they were a, a very underrated and underappreciated band, but to hear them sort of slide into this particular groove, yeah. Um, uh, you can isolate each instrument in your mind and uh, come to a deeper appreciation of Roger Pope's drumming, uh, Caleb's playing, obviously, and for me, most often, David Glover's bass. Yeah, he's really filling up the lower end on this, isn't he? If I didn't know better, I would have thought this was Herbie Flowers playing. This is just such a melodic approach, which David didn't necessarily pull that arrow out of his quiver. Often. No, he was definitely in jazz mode. And Caleb's got this really mm. soft tone here, the similar sort of tone that he used a few days later when they recorded My Father's Gun. It's got right. a similar sort of dampened feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful tone. It really is. Right, I'm going to turn it up for a moment just so that we can hear the transition into the solo. think this would this have belonged would it have worked on tumbleweed and obviously we've got to see that in the context of what elton was talking about at the time it was going to be a double album and you know i think the madman experiment is along the same sort of lines as well when they were trying to really stretch these songs as far as they could possibly get them to stretch right i'm, I'm honestly not sure how on board i am with that approach to this it's possible but Madman was tracked how many months later? Two months later, yeah. uh, and and there were uh, you know a handful of songs in between. So I'm not quite sure if the concept of the album, even even at the start, was you know we're going to do a bunch of jams or we're going to just stretch out songs. I just feel like this was them working on a relatively new song, even though it had been demoed in late 1969. Mm. I think that. 
as Gus was wont to do, was not restrict them in any way. So opposed to sort of the argument that they were focused on doing extended jams. I think it was sort of the reverse, that Gus said, Gus didn't want to hold them back from exploring, but always knowing that he could edit later on. I wonder what they were thinking of doing with it. What do you think, Peter? Could you imagine this have actually coming, have actually come out? My sentence went a bit wrong there grammatically, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um... It doesn't really fit with what he was doing at the time. I mean, we, we certainly know that he did do jams. I mean, the Bread and Beer Band showed that. Mm. And as you say, the Madman goes on quite a bit. Yeah. And of course, we've got that Take Me to the Pilot, uh, the Olympic version, which goes on sure. for eight or nine minutes. So they were obviously, you know, there, there was a mixture of uh, musicians there, but they were all kind of into, and Elton obviously was into these big jams. Maybe it was a way of developing the song. Who knows, yeah. you know? It would have been interesting, but it would have taken the album into a different vein of music, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really, it was much more country rock sort of feel to it. Yeah, it would have definitely softened and made it a little bit more diffuse as an album. As it is, it's a very strong country rock statement, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it would have turned it more into a Astral Weeks or a Moondance yeah. kind of feel to it, even though those songs weren't necessarily long. Uh, what I love about the, the just released version of Come Down in Time is, is actually hearing Gus twice in there, uh, whistling halfway through it. And you can just sort of see him waving his hands from, you know, behind the control room, even though those were on two different levels so who knows if anybody could see him but you know doing whatever he could to sort of stop them and then at the very 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 end uh he the tape shuts off but you can hear him say uh uh you know come on in and have a listen and he obviously calls him semprini doesn't he which is wonderfully <laughs> sarcastic <laughs> it does sound like a funny bloke Gus. Oh, oh my god he was yeah books could be written on on his level and speed of humour. But yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the, you know, I would assume if Paul hadn't gotten his hands on this, what version would we have had? I, I, I venture to say not the eight minute version, but something, you know, maybe a fade out on, on the four minute jam, you know, the, yeah. the, the brief jam after, after the lyrics end. It kind of tells me a bit about Gus's tape management because they had a take which was the seven something minute one um, and then it was like okay come and have a listen to that no let's do it again and then they I, as far as I hear it then they taped over the top of it with the five minute-ish version where he whistles to end that one and that was the later one ironically because it happens first that's how I hear it yeah it's a shame to think that Gus would have said to the tape ops who were in yet another yeah just wind it back area, area over wind there. It back. He definitely didn't think he was working with the Beatles, though, did he? You know, he, whereas, you know, from <laughs> when, when did the Beatles start doing that, Peter? Yeah, I mean, it, it really didn't really start till two or three albums in, I think. Yeah. When they kept everything. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff, isn't there, from about 65. Um, but of course, I suppose with Elton here, it, you know, he wasn't such a big artist then, so quite common to re you know rewind and go back over the multi-track yeah so no, i guess that's what he did i mean of course we don't know how bad or good the the the, the version the that they erased he may have had a scrappy beginning or yeah. it may have broken or it may have broken down somewhere yeah. so you know we'll never know 
Shall we skip over the weekend? Because three days later was Monday. I like I like knowing what day things are. It gives me an image of just getting up in the morning. And yes, it's Monday morning. They tackled three songs today, two of which ended up on the album. Um, it, this is a pure hookfoot one, although Buckmaster came in with some strings and horns. And the first one they did was Into the Old Man's Shoes. love the acoustic guitar tone hearing the yeah. acoustic and the piano together in different ears like that yeah it's really sweet this is a what a real tumbleweed lyric isn't it it really does belong <laughs> with the rest of them but yeah it came out on the b-side of your song didn't it yes yeah, slightly uh i started to refer to the tumbleweed sessions and album as bernie's uh fathers and guns album <laughs> uh, we had cat stevens doing father and son um uh, but bernie was right there with fathers and guns and this is one of them uh yeah into the old man's shoes um just just such a warm track and even though again i caught up to elton a few years later when i first heard this it just it, it showed me a different side of Elton. It wasn't rough and raw like most of Tumbleweed was, and it wasn't pastoral like uh, the Elton John album was. It was sort of a mixture of the two. Yeah, it's a it's a great sort of storytelling song. This isn't it really? It paints yeah. a a big picture, and you're drawn into it very quickly. I think. Yes. But it is softer than a lot of the other tracks, definitely on the Tumbleweed sessions. Yeah, there's no raw edge yet anywhere, is there? Yeah. It could be a John Denver song, this one, couldn't it? <laughs> steady now, steady. Sorry, I said the wrong thing. No, I, I have no problem with, with John Denver. I, I have to admit that this is pretty far down my list of favoured tunes from this era. I find it... Oh, I get in trouble for being mean about songs. I find it harmonically a little bit exhausting. It just sits in the same key and you end the verse and it's... I don't know what key it's in whatever key it's in, and then it starts the chorus in exactly the same place, and there's not a lot of progression. Not that I'm asking for like a big, straightforward pop modulation towards the end or anything like that, but yeah, I just feel like it doesn't take me far musically. Yeah, I, I understand, but I disagree. I mean, again, I think this is something that is using the band's music from Big Pink as a, as a direct jumping off point. I think mm -hmm. both in terms of songwriting style and in some ways also arrangement and tone. but rhythmically the way it builds uh with that acoustic guitar sort of ba -ba 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 -ba, and, and piano uh mine as well that's not something that we'd heard before in an elton john song that kind of hook right. uh it got my it, my ear my eyebrows went up when i first heard it's like oh wait this is new this is different i think i think the problem he had is he had so many strong songs that if one of them was viewed as being slightly less powerful it got relegated to a the b-side of a single but i mean in the absence of some of the other songs, it would have stood up. Mm. Uh, I mean, I can see why, you know, there may have been consideration to have done a, 
a double album or something because there were so many of these tracks uh, floating around in the background, weren't there? Including all the ones that we only have as piano demos that we're probably going to talk yeah. about in a, a bit later on. But yeah, there's, sure. they had quite a lot to choose from for this. So right. this is one they worked up all the way, but in the end they didn't, they didn't follow it through on the album. And they went so far as to take another artist's song and put it on there instead yeah. of something like this. So that's, yeah. that's an interesting discussion. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah, you're quite right. There would definitely be a place for this over Love Song. And there are quite a few people that review the album that love Love Song on there. But there are also quite a few that feel that it's a strange gesture for Elton to pull. Well, oh my God, can you hear Dick James (laughs) saying you're going to do what? (laughs) You're going to make me pay money to who now? And maybe even Ray Williams. I mean, you know, not to short shrift Leslie Duncan in any way, shape, or form, and it's a terrific rendition of the song, but just purely business side of it. It's just like how many people had to be talked into, including Love Song, instead of Old Man Shoes or some of the other songs that have come out in, in later years that were really in keeping with the feel of the album. It's just, just I. You, it's one of those things where you know, okay, you, you hear the album, it's like, okay, fine, this is this is how it always was, this is how it's supposed to be. But then if you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> how how did that happen? You're trying to, you're continuing to try to establish Elton and Bernie as songwriters. You're you're only a year into that process, really, uh, and along comes a Leslie Duncan song, very against the wind there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Although I have to say, when I first heard the album, I didn't know it was written by somebody else. I mean, right. I didn't no. look. Right. I mean, when I was a youngster, I mean, the funny thing is, as you get older, you get into all this detail about who played on what and where and with whom. But but back then, I just listened to the tracks and took them at, at face value. So mm. I, I just assumed it was an Elton John right. song. It right. wasn't until I heard the Leslie Duncan version that I looked. Ah. From a customer point of view, if you like, I don't think we would have noticed back then. Well, I get that, although also they're looking through the copious liner notes and in her booklet, she's sort of featured prominently in there as well. I just, I mean, there's yeah. a picture of her in there and so on. So, um, that's true. That's true. I'm just very unobservant, John. The <laughs> world <laughs> just passing you by. That's right. Yeah. Should we move on to the next? Should we move on to the next track that they did? Can you confirm for me, what's the next one? Was it My Father's Gun? No, Son of Your Father would have been the ah, next one. Uh, too is... many fathers and guns and sons. and you know, It just gets confusing. <laughs> Son of Your Father. Is that a morning session one or is it an right. afternoon? Because we were talking about this, weren't we, John? We were trying to establish yeah. whether or not it was afternoon and evening or morning right. and afternoon. Because you've got some conflicting things, haven't you? I don't have times of day on these master tapes that I'm, uh, the, the sheets of the master tapes that I'm looking at. It doesn't say what time of day, but it does have tape numbers on them. So that's how I can tell what sequence. Old Man Shoes was tape number 1186 and then uh, Son of Your Father was tape number 1187. Uh, so I don't know if these were done boom boom right after one another or if there was a meal in between I have no clue. And then just a, also a side note that on the same tape as Son of Your Father they did do a first try for My Father's Gun but it was rejected. And then they left that to the, a later session on the same day. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay let's have a listen to Um, Son of Your Father with a bit of Ian Duck's 
quacking on the uh, harmonica. It sometimes sounds like he's swallowed it when you listen to this. It sounds like it's actually part of his uh, vocal system. Something else. This edit has given me a whole new love for this song. Just hearing yeah. Caleb on his wah and Elton going head to head with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm appreciating just listening to this mix of it. Uh, Roger Pope's work. Yeah. That, that fill that he does between the uh, the verses and, and the chorus is just, it's just perfect. Yeah. It's quality, isn't it? I'm looking at the track sheet on this one. It's again a, a mono piano. But I think he wanted to give that sort of, yeah, K-Lab on one side, out and on the other. I think that was, that was the intention. No, that's probably very true. It's a good call. It's a great brass arrangement as well. Not a big brass fan usually, but uh, I think it really works here. You've got saxophones, tuba, bass trombones, tenor trombones, and trumpets. Wow. That'll do. Let's have a listen. I'll turn them up for a second. pretty throaty down there isn't it in the lower end sounds great yeah lovely yeah absolutely lovely i think it, i mean it's such a busy song that uh, it needs all that brass to sort of cut through it doesn't it to, yeah. to, to lift it to another level it's a good point you know there's quite a, quite a competition going on there all round i reckon <laughs> <laughs> But some of the sequences, I mean, obviously you hear that song end and you know exactly what's coming next. And it is, in fact, what we're going to hear next as well, ironically enough, um, in this case. But some of the sequencing, it's just wonderful. Like when you think about the way Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, it goes double time towards the end, but really softens out and it really opens up, doesn't it? And allows you into the come down in time space. And the same with that one. it's that big, solid, and it's the same key as my father's gun, isn't it? Well, the irony here, Neil, is that right up until the last minute, oh yeah, uh, son of your father was uh, supposed to go elsewhere on the album. Yeah, it was going to be swapped with um, Amarina, wasn't it? I mean, there is actually a tape box that exists 
with the original sequencing and, and Son of Your Father would have been the third song on the second side. Maybe somebody noticed what you just said and at the last minute and said, wait a minute, we need to rearrange this because it is a terrific uh, transition, even though, you know, there's there's a couple seconds of gap in between and so on. But still, yeah, it, it, it is a natural progression from Son of Your Father to My Father's Gun, but yeah. only created at the at the 11th hour. Should we go into My Father's Gun? My Father's Gun. So now, yes, we've we've really condensed the theme of the album into those three words. There's both a father and a gun in this title uh, and mm. this lyric, and and it's just this is sort of like the distillation of of Bernie's mindset at the time. Yeah, there's some pretty violent imagery all over this album. The previous song, as well, being another prime example of that. It's cinematic, and I guess that's what you get when uh, you're watching westerns. There are going to be conflicts, and there are going to be people who are desperate, and you've definitely got that in this song, haven't you? Yeah, you kind of imagine that the classic shot between the legs of one guy on a on a two man duel kind of thing, you know, in the in the center of town, in the main dirt road between the saloon and the country store or whatever, you know, and both guys with their hands a millimeter away from their pistols. That's the cinematic sort of aspect that I take away from a lot of the songs on this album, this one included. So, yeah, this is the 15th take of um, Good Lord. this. It's, I mean, not certainly not all of them were full takes. Some of them were false starts. Some of them went on, on a little way and then dissolved for one reason or the other. But, yeah, this is the 15th attempt on, on this thing, which is probably a personal record back then. They didn't. They didn't hang about, but they clearly wanted something in the sound here. Right. My mix that I've done is a bit bass heavy, I'm afraid. Um, it's just the way it worked out. And then it cuts out Caleb's lead guitar. Right, because that's in the center channel. Yeah. Yeah. So it highlights his acoustic, and it also exposes the orchestral arrangement and the horns, and it's very atmospheric. From this day on. Yeah. 
this is Dusty again, is that right? Yeah, this is uh, the backing vocals on this are Madeline Bell, Tommy Burroughs, Leslie Duncan, Kate Garner, mm. Tony Hazard, and Dusty Springfield. So that would mean that the backing vocals were done on April 4th, the same session as the backing vocals for Ballad of a Well-Known Gun. Mm-hmm. This is on, is it on the Deep Cuts CD? Or is it on the This Is Me? It's on one of them. This Is Me. And Elton, he talks about it being a New Orleans funeral song, doesn't he? Yeah. Which is interesting to hear him say. I don't think that's been said before. Yeah, it, it's a, it comes out so clearly when you listen to it in, in this mix that you've done or in the 5.1. It's just you're in the middle of a funeral march you know, yes. on a New Orleans street. It's just fantastic. It's quite impressive that he was able to put himself there. Yeah, I wonder how much of that was Paul's influence. You know, I've never spoken with Paul about his horn arrangements. For some reason, I've sort of skipped over that, going straight to his string work. Mm. You know, it's the horns that put you in New Orleans. I think if you took them out, you wouldn't necessarily think of that. Yeah, but it does steer away from being a dirge. It's a pretty piece of music and really bluesy, really three-dimensional. You can imagine being out there on the Delta, can't you, and seeing the steamboat doing a turn around the around the corner doing a turn i don't know what steamboats do i don't think they do a turn you know what i mean it's it's quite it's quite majestic this song it's slow stately and it's grand isn't it they probably have to do a turn otherwise they'd end up in argentina wouldn't they so yeah uh (laughs) but yeah this is elton noted that that this is the last track that was written for tumbleweed which is very very interesting Um, it's interesting when you think that there were quite a lot recorded in August. He said that in 1971, so I'm, I'm trusting you his memory on that there. one. Yeah. 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 You know, so the ones that were recorded later were clearly written before. Um, and lyrically, it's, it's, a, it's a Bernie sort of deviating from the traditional in that the soldier that's the subject of the song is uh, one of the, on the losing side. He was a Confederate soldier. Mm. Yeah, I've seen some reviews where people pick up, Americans specifically, get exercised by this, you know, that he was on, he's picked the wrong team here as far as they're concerned. I don't, yeah, I don't regard it as an American, I don't regard it as the wrong team per se. You, you, know, you know better than I do, I'm ignorant as it comes on this. Oh side. no, no, I mean, I, I think, I think there's, that's a valid perspective, but I think in Bernie's mind, and I'm totally supposing here, that it was just the lesser known side. So not necessarily the losing side or the wrong side, but the, the, everyone tells the story of the victors mm-hmm. in, in any situation, not just the American Civil War. That gets the most attention. So I feel like Bernie was there saying, well, wait a minute, what if we put a, shine a little light on, on the other side, just, just in, you know, for one song anyway. And it's interesting to think that he's writing about these fairly hopeless causes, isn't it? The same in uh, Burn Down the Mission. You feel like even if they do manage to burn down the mission, it's going to be, you know, the the last thing that they all do before they all get wiped off the face of the earth. Not happy days ahead, no, that's for sure. And then decades later, they they end up in Gone to Shiloh in in the song from the Union, which I I feel is like a a direct, I mean, clearly I'm not the first to think this or say this, but uh, those two albums could have been recorded at the same time, you know, in many, many ways, or written at the same time. And certainly yeah. Gone to Shiloh could have been a lyric from, from this batch, no question. I love uh, that ending, that vocal ending, uh, where Elton just goes, hey, 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 at the, at the end. I think that's a juicy fade out. Yeah, 
Gus knows what how to do a fade out, doesn't he? Yeah, he picks times, up like yeah. he'll always make sure that within that fade out, there's something right. interesting. You like hey, you, he wants you to lean in. Yes, exactly, exactly. This is a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a characteristic of him, isn't it? You definitely hear that in a lot of his uh, mixes. Just a little something happens just as it just fades out, and you strain your ears. I, I can remember turning the volume up at the end just to hear those <laughs> tail ends of the tracks, you know. I've done the more sophisticated version of that and trying yeah. desperately to to ramp it up in audacity. And I've, um, I've, we've already played it, you wouldn't have heard it, but at the very end of Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, I turned that right up because there's some stuff going on there that's very jazzy. Yeah. Um, and you really want to hear it, so... Um, you, you, you guys won't have heard it just then, but the listeners, I'll have, I'll have featured that for them, so they'll get to hear that. Okay. How many songs are we into now? Basically, one, two, three, four. Four of the album songs, and, and we're already... Yeah, the album's got a shape and a colour right now. I think they have an idea of what they're dealing with, don't they? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, there's, there's no feeling your way around. It's very clearly the approach. And again, some of these songs were, in a sense, leftovers, or they were written at the same time as the songs from, from the Elton John album, but very early on in the process, put aside for this record. And it just, at some point, they just looked and said, well, wait a minute, you know, here's what we've got, so we've got to go for it. Yeah. So there's um, a little bit of a break. No, there isn't actually a break in proceedings. They, re- they returned to the studio on the 15th, of April, according to your timeline, John. Yeah, three so weeks later. A couple, yeah. Three weeks, that's a bit of a break. What were they up to in the meantime? Right, so two days after, they were actually doing the reception at the Revolution Club. Which was a hook-foot gig, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I'd uh, always thought that that, um, that was... But it was the Roundhouse gig that was the first gig. Is that is that your understanding as well, John? Right, yeah, for, for the trio, right. Yeah, yeah but sorry, for the trio, yeah. yeah. So, right, so on, on March 25th, so two days after this, this day of sessions that we just spoke about, uh, Elton took time out of his busy 23rd birthday schedule uh, yes. to copyright My Father's Gun, uh, mm-hmm. for one, which, you know, I'm sure he didn't actually do anything for that, and then perform an afternoon midday reception at the Revolution Club in London to promote the Elton John album. So he's, he's halfway, almost halfway through recording the Tumbleweed album, but hold on, folks, wait a minute, we got to go back and promote the Elton John album. And then the day after that, he goes into BBC Radio Studios and does a John Peel uh, session um, with My Father's Gun and Valve Well-Known Gun. Although, as I say that, I'm still unclear, and Peter can probably help, as to whether or not that was an in-house BBC Radio Aeolian Hall session or actually a Paris theatre recording. It's it's a Paris cinema um, recording. Um, that's what's claimed. Although, yeah, you're right, John. There's a lot of um, question marks around this particular concert. Um, I mean, usually a session is without an audience, right? Um, but with the Paris cinema, you you know, you could have a yeah. I think it's could be about 120 people in there for like in concert type of uh, sessions. Mm. Um, the the track listing also is a bit vague as well. I've got it down that he did Border Song, uh, Take Me to the Pilot, Well-Known Gun, uh, definitely. And in fact, Well-Known Gun, I think, was also released on a uh, on a CD called Before You Fall um, that from was... that particular session. Wow. I think it's that version that's on there. Oh. I, I'm not totally sure, 
but uh, that's as far as I've got with this session. Um, uh, Jeff Griffin was the producer at the BBC. I've spoken to him a couple of times, um, and I've tried to prize a bit more info out of him. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you've got um, him to check under his bed to see if he's got any no. tapes. I have, yes. He, 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 he has quite a few tapes. <laughs> um, what, what, what of this circulates then? I'm lost when it comes to BBC sessions these days. I thought I had it in my head, but I really don't. I know I don't. No, that one that one doesn't circulate right, apart okay. from as I say, I think um Ballad of Well Known Gun, which I think's on this C D. I must find out. Um, I don't think I've heard it. Yeah, there's they're quite no, difficult to find, but they're out there. It was a it was a it was like a compilation issue of right. lots of sessions. By different artists, right? Yeah. Um but as far as I'm aware, the the rest of it doesn't circulate. And where is no. that? Place? What did you say? The Paris Theatre? Paris Cinema. It was a cinema originally, and the BBC bought it. It's in uh, Lower Regent Street. Oh, OK. Um, it, it's gone now. The BBC sold it. That's where the goons did stuff. All the in-concerts were done there. Oh, okay. Lo- lovely, lovely venue. It's a shame they lost it, really, because it was very intimate for um, performers. Very, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought bigger than 125 people. That's nice. Yeah, it might have been 200. I mean, it certainly wasn't more than 200. Wow. I, I asked cool. Caleb about the sessions because John McEwen put me up to this and said, ask him if there were any with an audience. And he did confirm that they definitely did do radio sessions with an audience. Mm. So I, but I don't, I, yeah, but all the others that you talk about were not done with a... No. Right. Were not done with an audience. Mm. But this one probably did because it was done okay. at Paris. Um, but again, I, you know, it, details about this one are... I'm afraid uh, are still very vague. Right. Whereas the earlier ones are a little bit more nailed down. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't exist anymore. What's the date again for this? What are we saying? So the session would have been March 26th, yeah. Yeah. But not broadcast until April 5th. Oh, right, okay. I've only got the broadcast date. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And then a couple of days after that was the actual three-piece debut on Tuesday the 7th of April. Right, at the Roundhouse. Yeah, but there's a couple of things even before oh, that. There's, yeah, uh, it's a fairly important thing, isn't there? Elton doing Border Song on Top of the Pops on April yeah. 2nd, um, which we've sort of talked about before as it relates to Dusty Springfield. Yeah. Uh, but again, where energy is best placed, uh, on some days it was purely on promoting the Elton John album mm. and its first single, Border Song. And then uh, two days later, they're back in the studio on April 4th doing backing vocal sessions for Ballad of Willem Gun, My Father's Gun. So, you know, living two lives at the same time, in a sense, really, God, thank God for youth. Uh, yeah, you know? and doing a lot of um, little sessions on the side here, which is something that Peter knows a lot about. This is, was really happening in this era, wasn't it, Peter? It was. There was a hell of a lot going on. I uh, did a Dave Lee Travis uh, session around this time. Recorded on the 6th of April. Yeah. Yeah. That's Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, Border Song. Uh, That all exists. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that's out there. That's with Hookfoot and the uh, Shanter sisters as well. Yeah, and and the live thing became quite confused in a way because he was doing all of the session stuff with Hookfoot, but then obviously spending every evening rehearsing, I imagine, with... Davy and uh, Davy with Nigel and D, not Davy at all. So yeah, it must have been a busy time for them. Yeah, and he also did. He again, he would not have had any effort on this one. But on April tenth, 
the Elton John album was actually released, mm-hmm. right? So, so again, he's halfway through recording its follow-up before the general public has even heard the, 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 the previous album. Uh, and then also on the 10th, he copyrighted Amarina and Burned Down the Mission and Madman Across the Water as songs in the UK. Mm-hmm. And just a few days later, he's, he's back in on the 15th for Talking All Soldiers. Yes, yeah. which we don't get to hear because that one was not completed which is interesting, isn't it? I wonder if they were at all going for a different approach or if they just went in there, tried to do the piano version and it didn't work out. We'd never know, will we? Right. It's it's a perplexing idea. It's a thing to think about. Um, what, what could have gone wrong? Right. With a piano and vocal only song, what was the... Yeah. What was the issue? You know, it could have been any number of things, couldn't it? It could have been technical. Could have been technical. Yeah, it could be. I wonder whether they did have problems with this or whether there were many takes, because I don't know if you've seen that, John, but there's a Trident Studios tape box, right. and it's at, the track is actually called Talking Old Bleeding Soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> wow. It does sound like someone's written that a few times, doesn't it? So, so it oh, may be great. that they've had enough of it by then. <laughs> no, it's funny. Right, God of all uh, of all songs, you think it's simple, but just Elton, yeah. just go to the piano and, and do the song. Just you know, don't have to worry yeah. about anything else. Maybe that was the trouble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Too much pressure. Right, right. No, certainly voc- on the vocals. It's. Uh, do you think they recorded the vocals on the piano at the same time? I ask us that as a general question, not necessarily about talking old soldiers or, or you know, I think it may have been, a, uh, I was asking them about ticking or something. Uh, I think I think ticking was done at the same time, but I think Gus's comment was that that was about the only time that was done. So that would suggest that talking old soldiers was, uh, the vocal was done separately. Okay. Later. It's difficult to tell from listening to it. I was trying to have a listen. Right. Um, we're, we're gonna. We're, that's not actually the next thing they recorded, and we've got some gigs before that as well. Because the three pieces now on the road, they're registering their new songs, like you say, "Burn Down the Mission Man, Man Across the Water," and "Amarina." There, there was a lot going on, but they they were out on tour, including Sorry. going to actual Paris. <laughs> not the yeah. Paris Theatre, but not even just the <laughs> Paris well, well, uh, on the street. They were they were in actual Paris for the Sergio Mendes gig. Between, so what do we have here? Between March 23rd, which was, again, that three-song session that we just spoke about, until them going back into the studio to attempt but not succeed at talking about soldiers, how many shows did he, or not shows, but performances did he do? Because some of these would have been television one-offs and things. So he did one, two, three, four. All right, so just four in this case. He did... Uh, the Revolution Club that we talked about on his birthday, the Paris Cinema that we talked about, mm. Top of the Pops at BBC, and then another BBC uh, session for David Lee Travis. So that would have taken us up to the 15th. But after the 15th, between the 15th and May 11th, which was the next time they went into Trident, how many? One, two, three, four, four again. There's a couple of more as well. What are those, Peter? Uh, it was transmission of first episode at Hyenton on Disco 2. That was recorded uh, a couple of days before May the 5th. We're not quite sure the date of that. With an orchestra, then, do you think, Peter? No, no, it was a video. He, oh, it was sorry. A, oh, it was he, the, he, the promo. But, he, but Elton performs in the video. Yeah. Ah. 
and it was filmed and uh, it was an insert on disco too oh. and then and then about we're not quite sure the date um I'm trying to verify it but about three or four weeks before then he did two songs for um late night lineup on bbc2 sure. which was an arts uh, yeah uh, <laughs> uh i'm wow. what's really annoying me is when I, when i left the bbc i wrote down i went to written archives at caversham which is where the bbc has all their information on their on their bookings and i i had all that information and i'm I've been through boxes and I can't find it yet, but I will find it. You and haven't chucked it, it anyway, so it's there. No, I definitely have, no, I definitely haven't thrown it. So I'm just trying to find <laughs> find that information. Um, but yeah, he did two numbers, which again aren't verified. So okay. one of them was Hyenton again. Wow. We don't know what the other one was. Wow, interesting. But he he did quite a few sessions for late night lineup on BBC. Uh, he's listed quite often, so I presume he was doing some session work at the time as well a bit like he did session work for disco too backing other artists yeah yeah you know um and there's only one of those uh disco twos that have survived in black and white yeah. which i think you've probably seen uh with d murray and uh caleb backing um oh geez lou christie yeah, uh, yeah, yeah sure. the one he actually covered on a covers album right exactly yes. uh, <laughs> yeah yeah she sold me magic yeah, yeah. Which is quite, ironic, really, isn't it? It's yeah. quite a squealy one, vocally, isn't it? It is. But you see the back of Elton on there. But yes. it apparently he did quite a lot of uh, session work for the BBC. And a lot of those uh, cover things that you just referred to. I mean, you know, for, Yeah, they're all the at this time. Yeah. Yeah, they're all around this time. And then we've got coming up <laughs> very soon in this timeline the, uh, you know, the uh, Nick Drake uh, album. Yeah. yeah. Nick Drake covers. So there's a, a lot going on at this time, isn't there? He's a busy guy. Very diffuse. Yeah, he's promoting yeah. the Black Album. He's recording Tumbleweed. And he, if he wasn't doing those two things, he would still be a very successful session musician, you know, <laughs> yeah. that no one has ever heard of doing cover yeah. versions for, for you know, one pound bin records or... Uh, publisher demos. Publisher demos, yeah. yeah just Lots of publisher demos. Yeah. Just remarkable. The, There's a lot the, of, a lot of time was, in the day for Elton. When he clearly, that, that's one thing you, they say, isn't it? If you want to get something done, ask someone busy. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you said before, Neil, clearly he had to do a lot of rehearsing with Nigel and Dee, uh, just leading leading up to the 21st. Yeah, that was all. Yeah, that didn't happen by mistake, did it? They were ready to go. Um, I'd love to know what those early sets were composed of, if there are any weird yeah. uh, empty sky. I mean, I think they've had, I'm sure they must have had a crack at Lady Samantha at some point, the three-piece. I bet they did. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. I mean, hopefully this this conversation is going to yeah. shake something free. Someone from who yeah. organised the Slough College charity rag ball on go. Saturday the 9th of May might yeah. have sneakily, you never know. Why not? A tape recorder running, please. Come or on. someone um, from the Champs-Élysées Theatre, because they were there as well with Sergio mm -hmm. Mendes around yeah. about that time. Someone, yeah, I doubt it. Because that was apparently a bit of a fruit fest, that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are along to Monday, the 11th of May, where there's a lot of these on a Monday. Another Monday. And this was a pretty low-key day. No musicians in aside from Elton and uh, Leslie Duncan, because they tackled Love Song first, which we've already chatted about a little bit and talking old soldiers subsequently. 
Let me just tell you, by the way, I've spent quite a long time going through and listening to various beach sound effect <laughs> records from the late 1960s trying to that's pretty sad i know i'll do this it so that no one else has only to. you Neil. This is but I'm, not, I'm afraid i've not come up with anything oh no no right. sorry no. <laughs> uh just as an aside brendan brendan glover another big collector he has uh, a rough mix of this from um gus of love song without the children and without the sea which is quite oh, interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. Very cool. But in a sense, yeah, that, that part that we're talking about is like the solo, you know, it's a sort of, it was pushed in later. Yeah. And if anyone listened to my previous episode, they'll know that the original original, not the one that was recorded on Sing Children Sing, but the actual B-side of the 1969 single by Leslie had a vacuum cleaner solo. <laughs> have you heard that, Pete? Have you not heard that one, Peter? I have not heard that, no. That's fantastic. <laughs> now I know that it's a vacuum cleaner. It kind of ruins the effect because beforehand you think this really otherworldly thing happens. Just yes, this, they... this waft in the room. It's very strange. One of the first synthesizers or something. Yeah, you know? like <laughs> a strange white noise generator that they spent hours <laughs> tuning perfectly to get exactly the right pink or white or brownness of the noise. Same. Um, but no, it was just the cleaning lady who's kind of making a point trying to get them all to uh, hop out of the studio because she wanted to lock up. <laughs> This is brilliant. Uh, it's a beautiful, I love her rendition. I think it's the, the early rendition is really atmospheric, isn't it? Sweet. It is. That one that you found is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. One thing I can say about this edit is I've managed to, because it's mixed centrally, so the tapping is removed, which is quite nice. Do we know who did it, though? Do we know? I, I couldn't find out where it came from. Is it somebody... I mean, if it, were, if it were something along the lines of Blackbird by Paul McCartney, right. then it would be yeah. Leslie herself tapping her foot in time with her playing. And yeah, yeah, okay. That's, it definitely is a, 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 foot, a foot tap or something like that. So anyway, have a listen to these vocals. Love is the open end Love is what we came here for no one could offer you more Do you know what I mean? Have your eyes really seen? One of the best two chord songs ever written. Yeah, just yeah. nothing to it, and then no less than six layers of vocals. Yeah, done by two people. Yeah, once you've got the central layer of vocals out, yeah, you hear these three, and he builds it left to right like this. Love is the key we must turn. Truth is the flame we must burn. Freedom, the lesson we must learn Do you know what I mean? Have your eyes really seen? It's a different outlook on the song, isn't it? 
When I have friends over to listen to the 5.1 of Elton's collection, this is the song that gets the attention off of this album the most, just because of the expansion of the backing vocals and, and how intricate the harmonies are between Leslie and Leslie, Elton and Elton, Elton and Leslie, and Leslie and Elton. It's, it's just this wonderful, wonderful build of backing vocals. Yeah, the 5.1 of that is really good, isn't it, John? I love that one. Yeah, 5.1 doesn't necessarily mean you've got everything flying all over the damn place. It just no, it just no. gives more room to breathe in a case like this. Ah, it's just stellar. Yeah, it's really beautiful vocals. He certainly knew how to record at Trident, didn't he, Gus? He's got some wonderful sounds there. This was done on 8-track uh, and with David Henschel as tape op. Hmm. So there's one track of vocals, there's a second track of vocals, then track three is acoustic guitar, which of course is Leslie. Mm. Track four, it says taps and guitar. And then the last four tracks are vocals, again, backing vocals. So mm. so maybe he couldn't, maybe the taps were embedded into the, yeah, into the guitar track. Um, or maybe that was just what was done back then, like you say, referencing Blackbird. I think they were referencing Blackbird with that. It definitely feels like that. That's what, and it's got a Sounds similar like it. pastoral yeah. feel. The whole thing is very outdoorsy, isn't it? And so, yeah, you can see why. Do we like this song on this album? Does yeah. it belong there? Where is it? Where does it in the running order? I forget. It's after Where To Now, St. Peter. Yes, that second that's track? right. Second track side two. It definitely... Where you've got where to now, St. Peter is a very immediate, important piece of music. This sure. one is a step into left field, isn't it? And it's calmer, relaxing. It gives the album a chance to breathe. Yeah, yeah. I think if you put it anywhere else, it would either interrupt or get lost, depending on where else it was put. And I think it's the perfect placement, second song on on side two. It, it's part of the flow of the album while still being. Yes, just a, just removed enough. Mm. And and again, what did they pass over for this? They passed over Into the Old Man's Shoes, uh, Sisters of the Cross. Rolling Western Union. Rolling Western Union, which was never fully developed, but they certainly could have. Mm. Uh, oh, what was the other one, Peter? Uh, the one that, Last to Arrive. Oh, Last to um, Arrive, yeah. El Paso. Yeah, all the way down to Right, El Paso. certainly El Paso, which was put out on the Black Album, but yeah. So that's what, five or so songs that, that just, they, they chose to not develop or put on in place of this. Yeah. Here's a question, John. Baby, I miss you. Um, do we know whether that fits here or not? Because I, I've actually got acetates of that where there are tumbleweed-related tracks on the other side. And I don't know whether that's just oh. a aberration or oh, whether or not whether that track also fits in with these sessions. I've not seen anything in writing or any evidence, but... It's a full it, band it, hook footy recording, isn't it? Well, there's a piano demo and a full oh, is band version. Yeah, yeah. The one on Jailbox so, is the band demo. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, it's, it's kind of a mystery to me. This is one of the ones that I don't trust the Universal Data uh, database. Because um, right. they, they have it as a 1969 recording, the band demo version anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, that just feels late to me. Um, yeah. And then now looking at my data, my own personal database that I keep for the organization, 
What I have for the band demo that appears on Jewelbox yeah. is uh, February 5th, 1969, actually, for that band demo. Right. And that is thanks to the erstwhile Mark Lewison uh, research that he did for um, oh, yeah. the, the Philip Norman book. Um, right. So I, we trust that. Uh, so whether yep. or not the piano demo was you know, substantially before, that's hard to say. Uh, you yeah. would know better yeah. than I. But yeah, it makes more sense. I mean, obviously, it's a country tune, so you could yeah. you could see it coming from this body of right. music, yeah. couldn't you? But it hasn't got the sophistication of even something like country comfort. No. But then again, there are some strange upside down things that uh, that Jewel Box is giving us. You know, some oddly mature songs that turn up earlier than you would expect them to be. I feel. Yeah. I feel. So you can, yeah. it's easy to, for me to say, oh, that's way too sophisticated for 1968 Elton or vice versa. He'd never write something like that in 1970. But it yeah. doesn't work like that at all, does it? There it's not a straight line at no, all. At no, all. it certainly doesn't. Sure. I think this whole period of his career was split between the sort of what you call pop tunes and serious music, wasn't it? I mean, certainly his work at DJM was split down the middle and I mean it mm. probably as an artist in the first few years I mean he was a very underground serious artist up up until right. Madman and right. then it started diverge with uh, Honky Chateau when you started getting you know more not pop songs but you know what I mean songs that are going to chart and then of course that really took off in Don't Shoot Me so mm. he's always been one of those artists that's got to follow it sort of like an underground following for the sort of right. heavy serious stuff if we can call it that and then also you had the sort of pop side. So, you know, it's difficult to judge these tracks really on whether they were from a different date because, it, as you said, Neil, you know, some of them are quite straightforward pop songs and some of them aren't. Yeah. They're more complex. Yeah. So there's always that dilemma, I think. Yeah, um, you've got lots of different pressures on his songwriting at this time, whereas by right. the time Honky Chateau and Don't Shoot Me come out, there was just one line that they were following then, wasn't there? Things had, yeah. things had, pretty um, much, yeah. yeah, pretty much. I mean, I know that they, I'm not saying they just wrote the same old thing, but you know what I mean? Right, right, that, right, I that, yeah. There was a, like a singular conception of what they were trying to do. Whereas before right. it felt right. like um, they were just throwing as much as they could at the wall and to yeah. see what would stick. That's not very fair, but you know, that what did, what did Elton describe Madman, the album Madman as? He said it was like a surreal version of the Elton John album. I right. love that. Right. It's yeah. just the, the fact that they were like, yeah, let's do that, but let's yeah. do it really weird and strange yeah. this time, yeah. which is exactly what it is. I mean, certainly my recollection of that time in the UK was, you know, you walked around with an Elton John album under your arm to show that you were cool mm, and yes. you enjoyed serious <laughs> music. And that lasted up until Madman, I'd say. And then it it started to change as he became more mainstream. And, of course, in those days, you know, there were album bands and there were singles bands and he was very much an album guy. So, Mm. you know, the the whole thing changed very quickly after after Madman. Yeah, Yeah, the way we phrase it in America and maybe in the UK as well is is AM radio versus FM radio. So he was an FM radio artist uh, up through uh, through Madman. And then very quickly and decisively uh, became an AM radio artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah Afterwards, um, but yeah, I think you know, talking about um, whether or not love song fits, uh, or you know, uh, was it worthy of putting on an album um, in lieu of other strong songs that were in there? I think um, 
Most certainly, yes. And, and it just showed for the first time, to my mind, how well Elton could make somebody else's song his own. Yeah. This is like a forerunner to the cover of John Lennon's One Day at a Time or even Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, where the original version is fine and, and wonderful and fully formed. But then when Elton gets his hands on it, he's not mimicking no. at all. He's making it his own. And, and no, to, me, to me, it starts here. Yeah. I mean, that's true. The Nick Drake uh, covers, isn't it? I mean, he makes also those true. songs. Yeah. You know, he's. And also a lot of the cover, you know, the top 10 hits covers, he, he often, it was Elton John plays that song. It wasn't him trying to mimic always the those, original artist. Those were artist. all arranged, though, weren't they, for them by uh, Alan Caddy yeah. and a few. What really interests me about the Nick Drake stuff that he did is that I read your article, John, about this the other day. Uh, my, the old article, Three Stone yeah. Lights, yes. And in there... I can't remember the name of the lady that worked alongside Joe, but she said, oh, the man you want is Elton John. And I just find it quite fascinating that he was the name on the top of someone's Rolodex. Um, Because well, certainly we know that he doesn't have a huge interest in making arrangements per se, but it did feel like when he did the Nick Drake thing, they brought him in kind of as an arranger. Yes, I know they were done, you know, fairly straight deliberately. That's what they wanted. But still, I didn't really think he had those sorts of skills. Surprised me. I love that quote from Joe Boyd that you that you mentioned. I just think that's, yeah, we don't think of him as a premier session artist, but they did at the time. Yeah. And, and I think it's both, certainly, obviously, both about his skills uh, as a pianist, uh, vocal person, and or, and in some small way, arranger, but also the damn speed with which he worked. I mean, you knew yeah. that when you hired Reg to White, you were in and out of there in, in you know, two hours. I mean, it just, he didn't screw around. Uh, not that the others did, but he just, you know, he could start from, from ground zero uh, and and catch up incredibly quickly, uh, yeah. and that's the sign of a good uh, session musician. It's both talent and uh, you know speed. Yeah. But no, let's get back on to uh, May eleventh, shall we? Is it worth just mentioning the live version of Love Song on the Royal Festival Hall concert in nineteen seventy four? That, uh, yeah, I just yeah. I mean, it's not a not a track that's often played live and we do have a good recording of that yeah alongside leslie it's clearly an important song for elton isn't it yeah right and i think a lot of that is because it connects him to the counterculture in a way it connects him to folk music and it connects him to that more real thing than the crocodile rock direction that he might have been seen to be going in around 1974. Yeah. Yeah. Things were becoming very mainstream for him, but actually at the heart of him, there is a real musician that's part of the folk scene, part of the R&B scene. You know, he's he's got his fingers in many different musical pies, and I don't think he wanted people to forget that. And Leslie Duncan, Mm. as I said in my previous episode, she was... Ex-girlfriend of Scott Walker, she introduced Scott and Bowie to Jacques Brel, um, and maybe Elton as well, for all we know, because according to Keith Hayward's book, I've I've checked now, it was Keith, um, according to that, he went to the house there in Hampstead Heath as well. I'd love to know what he'd have made of it all. 
Right, right. With with all these people sort of milling about with patchouli in the air or yes. other <laughs> other scents in the air. Uh, yeah, not not where you think Elton would have sort of spent his time back then. But according to Keith, he was there uh, a little bit. And yeah, his connection with Leslie, I think, is you know something that can be explored by by perhaps a Leslie historian. You know, just yeah. to sort of see what the overlap was, but. Peter's observation or, or suggestion that we talk about the, the Royal Festival Hall performance, I think, is, is so incredibly apt because, as I said before, the studio version, the Tumbleweed Connection version of this song, to me, is the first time really on an Elton record that we hear him make somebody else's song his own. The arrangement from the Royal Festival Hall is totally different. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's piano-based. Uh, if not entirely piano, it's, you know, with Leslie on vocal and still perfect in, yeah. in and of itself. Both versions that Elton sort of interpreted were yeah. absolutely stellar mm. and different yeah, from one another. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting he chooses that track, isn't it? Because he was playing la landmark tracks in his career at that intro. I mean, he started with Skyline Pigeon. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. Then he did Your Song. Then he did Love Song. Then he did Friends, which is quite interesting back then. Yeah, with the so 74 band. You know, that's quite a quite an interesting run of tracks, uh, the first three or four tracks of the concert. Yeah, you know? he could have chosen any others of his own yeah. from that era. Yeah. That, uh, and, and yeah, he, he thought it was so important and thought enough to bring Leslie out on stage at this rather, you know, prestigious event. So, yeah. Well, let's move on to the penultimate track of the album, but it's the second song of this session, which is Talking Old Soldiers, which, if you're wondering, um, is the wrong way around. Those adjectives, if you're saying that, that talking is an adjective, it's a talking soldier, it should be old talking soldiers. That's the way... There's a, there's a set rule. I don't know if Bernie's aware, but there's a set rule for the ordering of adjectives. Maybe that's why they put bleeding in the way. Yeah, exactly. Just to clarify that it's very wrong. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm joshing. All right, we're gonna we're gonna have it run underneath. There's nothing revelatory here. It's a heavy old one for Elton to take on this lyrically, isn't it? Yeah, so this is the David Ackles song, basically. You know, the, the one that was inspired by David's work. And very storytelling, very sort of a stream is flowing along, a song is a stream is flowing along kind of thing. Conversational and the first and one of the still only just... Elton and piano and vocal releases in his catalog. Both of these, you know, this is one session um, on May 11th, and it was an eight track on both of them. So, you know, just no breaks in between the two. And yeah, as minimal as you could ask for. It's a, it's a good vocal performance, but I feel this was quite a tough one for him to carry vocally. I, I, he's a young man. It's even harder than 60 years on. For him to embody, I don't. I think he does well. I think he does very well. But he's clearly a young man singing an old man's song here, and it doesn't really mm -hmm. make much of sense. But mm -hmm. then again, they would. They would. That's the thing. They would, 
Bernie would, you know, like a slideshow, switch from one image to another, and that was just Elton's right. job. He was he wasn't right. he didn't feel sensitive about it. He would just get on and do it, wouldn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it. I mean, lower register, obviously. Um, if in fact the piano and the vocals were done separately, I'm reminded of something that Gus again once mentioned to me back in the 90s when he and I were in conversation, where Gus was always so impressed with Elton's talent of pulling piano parts back when he later sang, when he knew that the vocal line was was coming up. Uh, so I think I think sort of the ebb and flow of the piano track on this song is really, really interesting mm. in that Elton didn't overplay the piano when he would later sing. Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. That, that's what makes me think sometimes, because it is so well done like that, that's what right. makes me feel like this has to have been recorded simultaneously, because, yeah, it's, it's quite a feat. To get well, I, right. Yeah, the skill is that we don't know. That's yeah, the thing. It's well, exactly. so well done. We can't yeah. be sure. Yeah. What do you think of this one, Peter? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, my memory is that it was kind of a, a on a technical note, a kind of challenging track for most turntables because it was cut pretty hot that vocal, yeah. and and you could get some cartridges would mistrack it, so it break up a little bit when he was really oh, giving it goodness. all. So oh. I, that's what I remember from it. Um, that's fantastic. It was, it was a pretty hot cut at the time. So did that happen um, to you then? Did you have a... Well, of course not. I had the finest turntable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it. Oh, how, how could you? Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it, it's quite gruelling, isn't it, as a track? Um, mm. It's not one that you play when you're feeling uh, depressed, I don't think. Um, but, but, it, but nevertheless, you know, I think he carries it off. I think it's a pretty powerful track. And very unusual at the time as well. That, that's the thing I remember when I mm -hmm. when I heard it. It didn't sound like anything else. Mm -hmm. Not just nothing like any Elton track, but anything else. That kind oh, anyway, of delivery. Right, yeah. It was really out there, I think, at the time. It's, it's very brave. Very forceful. Yeah. Mm. It, you can feel once you've listened to, say, Road to Cairo by David Ackles, that it, it really does come from there. Mm, Having yeah. the idea of a conversation, but only really hearing one side. I know we do kind of hear both sides, but it's dominated by the old talking soldier um, <laughs> <laughs> um it, it i i feel it has a bit more authenticity oh i don't know i sound like i'm being really mean about it but i, th I think when ackles does it i believe it he sounds like that hobo whereas elton yeah. does not to me sound like an ex-confederate soldier or whatever it is he may be oh interesting um well that's the end of that day shall we move on in our timeline find out what Elton was up to thereafter. In fact, I've got nothing until the next session. So, right, so that was what, May 11th? May, Monday, May the 11th. And right, there are no shows in between. There's no That's shows. Right. And the next thing up is the session on Monday, May the 18th, which is when they got uh, Mick Ronson in. This is where Elton and uh, Bowie's worlds collide most directly. Um, Mick Ronson and Michael Chapman on acoustic guitar playing the harmonics and then Gus in the studio playing the reverse reverb on the acoustic guitar with all sorts of wild placements that uh, Greg Penny had a bit of fun with. Yeah, the 5.1, he threw this stuff all over the place. It's a, it's a, 
you don't have to take drugs to listen to uh, Mad Men Across the Water, original version of 5.1. It's, it's psychedelic. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't done an edit on this. I tried. I played with this for ages and ages, actually, trying to get something interesting. But in the end, I couldn't actually top what was already there. It's great uh-huh. recording. Yeah, we've got Herbie Flowers on bass here, which is, uh, he just doesn't do any wrong, and Barry Morgan on drums, for, you yeah. know, brought back in after the Black Album. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's interesting that they thought so little of this that they had to totally overhaul it, because in many ways, while it isn't necessarily a song that would fit on Tumbleweed, it is mm. a fine version of uh, an Elton John song. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Had you heard this, Peter, before it came out in 1990, whatever it was? Yeah, the, the, uh, there was a very, uh, very bad mix of it uh, floating around for quite a, from the 70s. Really? Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. with, with like the bass was so overpowering, it was insane. <laughs> and I, I had it then. Um, I don't think anyone had connected it to Tumbleweed Sessions at the time. No. That didn't come out till a bit later. 
Okay. I think I think at the time it was felt that it was just an early version. Yeah. Yeah. But but then obviously as time went on we, we discovered that it was recorded in the in the Tumbleweed sessions. Um to be honest, you see I've always felt that it could have fitted into Tumbleweed, but you know ah. to me it has that kind of feel to it that, that Tumbleweed has uh, so I I could see that if they were I, I don't know whether it, was it true that they were going to think about doing a double album I don't know Elton Elton himself has said it it's recorded in March it's an interview yeah. with Brian uh, whatever his name is from the BBC oh, right. yeah. in March and he says we've, well what's going on he says I've got the album coming out but we've recorded this other album which is going to be at, we're, st- we're halfway through it it's going to be a double that's what he says it's yeah. going to be band and folk songs right Okay. Oh, so you All could right. you could see it, couldn't you? Because Madman would occupy about nine minutes. Yeah, no, you didn't. Um, but come down in time, track. come down in time, we've occupied another nine minutes. <laughs> so you know, put the other five tracks on that aren't on there, and there you go. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, it definitely has expanded now. What we've got for Tumbleweed, I could probably put something together, but it wouldn't be a very coherent. Listen, but yeah, there was a lot of material at the time, and the fact that he wrote this almost. Oh, it seems to be on the same day as Burn Down the Mission, as far as it was registered. Certainly in the same month, wasn't it? He he yeah. was doing a lot of long-form writing, both this right. and right. Burn Down the Mission. They've got long choruses with lots of different sections where you think, oh, is that the chorus? No, here's the chorus. They're, they're both like that, aren't they? And so he was definitely stretching out in his songwriting in this time and you know, working towards songs that would take three minutes to get to the chorus you know that's kind of where he was yeah yeah uh it's a good it's a good observation the the stretching of the, the songwriting format uh inspired as he said by not just uh, leon russell's work but laura nero as well you know who who although i think he calls her laura nairo so i, I get yeah, confused as an englishman but, i would is, that nero? <laughs> is it nero I, I it's nero, nero. Yeah. yeah well uh you say Nero, I say no. <laughs> <laughs> the the observation you just made about uh, Neil about Elton's uh, you know long form songwriting is it could be said clearly about hers. She she put four or five songs into one song sometimes. Yes. Yeah, he definitely saw that. There, she opened the door, didn't she, for a lot of yeah. that. that approach yeah. and changing her like the rhythmic feel halfway through a song is something that she would do isn't it yes exactly right right but having it work and this is what i was going to say about actually talking about soldiers and maybe it applies to this as well is that the uh connection between elton and bernie as human beings as friends as two parts almost in a sense of one person if Bernie freaked out over a David Ackles song and then wrote Talking Up Soldiers, or if he freaked out about something else and wrote Bad Man or Burned Down the Mission, mm. he didn't then have to say, here, Reg, go and research this. Go and listen to this album that I've already heard. You know, it, they were listening to the same music at the same time yeah. and freaking out about the same music at the same time. Mm. So all Bernie had to do was hand a piece of paper over to Elton, and Elton knew the inspiration behind uh, Bernie's work. It's the the uh, stereo, as it were, the phonograph inspiration behind Bernie's words. Whereas other artists uh, of any time would might have to verbally communicate. Yeah, let's see what feel we want for that. Whereas you look at Burn Down the Mission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know that. Yeah, you know you look at Talking Old Soldiers. You know that it's an Ackles one. If you're if you're Elton, don't you? You know what 
And Elton already knew who David Ackles was and already loved the album. Just, I mean, he was sitting probably around the same phonograph record in his and Bernie's room in in uh, Northwood Hills uh, at From Court, listening to the same album. So it's just, I love the synergy. It really shows and uh, in, in that the music fits the words and the words fit the music so, so very well, which is, when I say it, it sounds like so, such a, sort of infantile, you know, description of, of the process. But but I think these songs yeah, really... Yeah, they had a real understanding, didn't they? Yeah. One of my favourite... Uh, my favourite Bowie album is Outside, um, actually. But my one right up there, alongside Hunky Dory, is The Man That Sold the World. And sure. this has, you know, with that heavy chugging bass, sure. has a real feel from that album. And yeah, it's, and it's, I think, almost simultaneously recorded, very similar time frame, I think. I think so, yeah. So, yeah. And actually, there are a few quotes from Ronson, I think, from some of the tracks in there as well, in his solos. I've seen people say, ah, there are elements of this or that in there. I don't know my uh, Bowie that well to be able to point it out, but yeah. Yeah. Just listening to it in the background, I I, I must admit what you said, John, where you didn't see it fit. Uh, You know, I I do see what you mean because it it, it goes into quite heavy progressive kind of. Right. It's not. It's not country or western. It's not, you know, it's not. It, it's not got a western theme to it. it. It it certainly goes off in that. It's not even jazz, which mm. you could probably have got away with with the coming down in time. But it it certainly goes out there, doesn't it, towards the end? And as you say, probably that's maybe the reason why they decided to drop it. That's my feeling. I mean, in yeah. a way, I mean, tonally, uh, metallically, it's more metallic in a sense because of you know because of Bronson's yeah. guitar, especially. And you could also almost say it's it's got some Frank Zappa influences in there, yeah. just just yeah. In, in the direction that it goes in. So, mm. all very exciting and valid, but um, to me, just just far enough away from Tumbleweed to, to fit and. You know, if they had kept this version, if they'd never re-recorded it, I, I'm not quite sure this version would have fit on the actual Madman Across the Water album. You know, again, no. it's, it's divergent from that. So. No, yeah, no, they definitely came up with a whole new approach for it in the end. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that. I don't know. It was one something that was in one of your articles. I forget where. It doesn't make sense that it would have been in the Tumbleweed one. But you said that. Michael Chapman didn't want to re-record it, wasn't interested, and that was the reason why Davey right. got the nod, because Chapman right. himself was like, oh, I can't be doing we're doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah, weird that, attitude for a session musician to me. <laughs> yeah, that actually was in the Tumbleweed article, because it was I, Tumbleweed. I, I, I put that quote in there in, in, as Mad Men is, is, you know, an original, is an alternate track. Uh, I got the sense from the way Gus described it, that Mick was just freaked out about playing for an artist of Elton's stature. You mean Chapman, Michael Chapman. Michael I'm sorry, Chapman. thank you, Michael Chapman, my mistake. Uh, so the question is, I mean, Elton really may not have reached a stature yet. You know, we, I, at this point, I'm still not thinking of him as a megastar. Certainly not um, when this was being recorded. Yeah, exactly, right. I mean, again, the Black Album would have just come out just yeah. recently. So... Uh, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm not quite sure why Michael felt that way, but he did, uh, according to Gus anyway. So it was, a, it was kind of a musician freakout kind of thing. Just, uh, you know, I, I, could, I handled it once, and that's all I can take. So, wow. so I can't do it again. Really? Yeah, it's, it's a strange. He's a great, great songwriter, Michael Chapman. I would recommend anyone have a listen to some of his stuff. He's a really good writer. 
yeah. and was still up until when the world fell apart touring mm. the UK yeah. doing folk clubs here and there um it's depressing I've talked about the world falling apart now shall we move <laughs> on I've, I've got nothing between the two I believe am I it's two weeks later was the 2nd of June Tuesday the 2nd of June what have we got between those German TV uh, you've mentioned so the Hamburg Germany TV studio was actually May 28th 1970 it didn't air until June oh so he was out there for that yeah, I think it just sort of popped over and popped back kind of thing. You don't, don't know what he did, did over there, were. do like That was Border to, Song. It was Border Song, okay, yeah. The video of that ended up on the DVD uh, of the Elton 60th at Madison Square yeah. Garden bonus tracks. Um, yeah. So, so th- this was the one that Henry Scott Irvine uh, unearthed yeah. as the first known TV appearance uh, of Elton at the time. Ah, yes. yeah. that's where it comes from. Because I was always confused thinking it was Knock or something. The Song Festival, I thought it came from there. Ah, uh, no. It was for Hits A Go-Go, and it was done on May 28th, 1970, and it aired a little while later. So, mm-hmm. so Elton was starting to use his passport, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not not often, but often enough. So he had already been to France with that Sergio Mendes thing. Then he went to Germany on May 28th. And he was going to Belgium a couple of weeks later, wasn't he? Sweden, One week later. He's in Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Um, he's starting to tour his album, is what he's doing, in the UK. Yeah, in the, in the sort of student unions and folk clubs yeah. and things like that. Well, yeah, he, he he did the Elton in concert on BBC One, didn't he, as well? That's around that time, yes, May. that's a very good point. That was May the 22nd they recorded that That's one. right, good point. Yeah. yeah. Where, of course, they did Burn Down the Mission. Yeah. Which, at that point, still hadn't been recorded. No. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? It was, it was yeah. a couple of weeks wow, later. Wow, I hadn't done the math on that. Isn't yeah. that interesting? That's I know, right. it's fascinating, isn't it? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's the only track, I think, from Tumbleweed, isn't it? West yeah, the rest uh, is just... Black Album, I think. Yeah. Uh, but they did do four or five, again, gigs between the two sessions. So between May 18th and May, and June 2nd, they did one, two, three, four, so, uh, four gigs uh, that we've two, already talked two gigs, about. Two gigs, Speakeasy and Mothers. Have you got any more than that? Uh, so the, well, I'm including the other ones. The other performances, studio, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and then the uh, hits a go go in Germany. So those are the, that makes up the four. All um, sorts of different types of setups. The three piece. That's the thing. Hook, yeah, foot, exactly. Orchestra. Lots going on in that time, isn't there? Right. Exactly. Still a very sort of scattered uh, focus kind yeah. of thing, but. And then also tucked in the middle there, May twenty third is when the Elton John album first enters the UK album charts. Ah, uh, yes. At number 48, uh, <laughs> and then leaves two weeks later. But, you know, so depending on whether or not Elton was already an avid chart watcher at the time, and I suspect he was, oh, there may have, been, yeah. may have been some peak and valley emotions going on there. You know, <laughs> oh, it's, you exactly. know, it's in, and then it's out, and then a week or so yeah. later, he's got to record uh, on June 2nd and, and, and record a an energetic song yeah biggie it's a biggie yeah. in the in the repertoire isn't it so that's where we brought it to a close for the day we came back to it um, a few days later and hopefully i'll have the second half of that conversation up and ready for you all to listen to very soon in the meantime here uh, to play you out is a version of ballad of a well-known gun another version 
Um, but this one's a three-piece one, and this was recorded in Tokyo on the 10th of October, 1971. Hope you enjoy it. Hear it. I said, there goes the well known gun. There goes the well known gun. I said, 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 there goes the well known gun. I said
crowd. Thank you.